The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. That's the sound of the idyllic Kent countryside, the native wildlife joined by something a little more exotic from Ralph Steadman, welcoming you to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week, we're looking at responses to our slow-mo tumble into environmental catastrophe. We'll be hearing from Carol Ann Duffy, who's brought together a collection of poets to look disaster in the eye with a series of climate change poems commissioned as part of the Guardian's Keep It in the Ground campaign. But first... We'll catch up with the artist Ralph Stadman and the filmmaker Kerry Levy, who've been exploring the pressures on animals in a series of portraits of endangered, extinct and even imaginary birds. There's a bird right there. There is? Yes, there is. Wood pigeons. <laughs> A wood pigeon, is that a rare bird? No, it's one of the most common birds you could ever hope to see. So we're off the mark and probably next will be a magpie. There you go. And then a blackbird. But you never know, we might find the odd boyd in here somewhere. Uh, which of the boyds do you think you'd find in an English country garden? Uh, I think probably today we might find the needless smut. I mean, that's potentially I've, here. I've yet to see one here. Really? Oh, yes. I've, I've, I've imagined I saw one. But I haven't actually seen one. Yeah, whereabouts would we look for a needless smut? Well, anywhere where it can laze and hide away and, and not get on with whatever it is it should be doing. So, you know, it, it could have its feet up. The needless smut can't lay. That's why it's in such big trouble. Uh, I thought it laid needlessly. <laughs> so, Ralph, what's the best spot for lazing in this garden? The best spot for lazing? Uh, let me see. I've got a place over there. It's very thought-provoking. That could be a very good place to just go stand and think or ruminate. Let's try a bit of that. How did this all start with birds? Well, I suppose I'd been looking for something to do having finished the film and I was away on holiday in the Isles of Scilly and as I was wandering around the island one day... I saw this little bird in a tree and I was standing with my wife and I was going, oh, that's nice, what is it? Mm, I don't know, it's not a sparrow. When suddenly there was a sound of, it's over here! And I was barged out of the way by all these bird watchers with their telescopes and binoculars and tripods and anoraks and things. And I thought, this is crazy, this is a really strange thing to do. I know, I'll make a short documentary about this strange pastime. So I went back the next year, started filming these people in their activities and suddenly I looked at a bird and I thought, that's really an interesting bird. And it was a red-eyed vireo, which is a North American vagrant that shouldn't be on our shores. And I thought, 
actually this is quite a nice thing to do to get out into nature and to find yourself in touch with nature and maybe think well actually it'd be more interesting to do a film about how birds affect people i.e the bird effect which is what it's going to be called and so i started looking at the way birds influence and affect artists writers scientists conservationists musicians and uh, more and more i kept getting drawn to the conservation side of things so I was working on putting together an exhibition about extinction and approached artists that I really wanted to take part in in the show. And one of the people I approached was Ralph. And somebody gave me his email and said, look, you know, send him an email. You probably won't hear from him for some while. And then just suddenly something magical may just appear in your inbox one day. And sure enough, after about two months, suddenly I got an email from Ralph saying, I've got no idea what it is, what you want from me, but I'm intrigued. And so our relationship developed. And once we started working out exactly what we were going to do, Ralph did one drawing, then another, then another. And suddenly we had a hundred different drawings of birds. And we found that this was quite a collection. And then that became the first book, Extinct Boyds. And then when that had been out and had done well, we started looking at what would be good to do to follow up. And if that first book was all about the birds we've lost, then maybe it'd be good to find out all the birds we could save, i.e. the critically endangered, endangered birds of today. So that led us to an extinction. Do either of you find yourself looking at birds differently, having done these books? Upside down. Yeah, I, th I think we do. I think we both do. I mean, I've talked to Ralph about this quite a bit. The fact that we've sort of taken on the sort of role of championing the extinct and the birds now that are extinct and waiting for extinction. I think it's made us both far more aware of what surrounds us all the time. And I find I can put beaks on almost anything. A politician, you could even do that, you know. It's a very definite shape, isn't it? it oh, without a doubt. Even the curved ones. You know their beaks. It's got a point, hasn't it, as well? That's, uh, some of them haven't. Some of them are snub-nosed, aren't they? God, all these puns going around <laughs> the place. It's frightening. I can't bear it. So if it's changed your attitude to birds. What about the rest of the natural world? Yeah, because I think birds are the, the greatest indicator of the world around you. So, I mean, if there's a problem for birds, there's actually a problem somewhere else, ultimately, say, for man. I mean, I think it's why they took a canary down a coal mine, because it would be the first to be affected by the gases that were poisonous and would keel over before it damaged humans. And I think it's the same with the environment and the habitat that surrounds birds. They can tell us more about what's going on in our natural world than probably any other creature. What about cats? Cats. Cats are not really very bird-friendly. <laughs> me, me, and meow, meow, meow. I mean, it's really... As long as cats have got what they want, uh, you know, a little warm cubby hole somewhere and a plate of food, you know, to or, eat. Or, or the blackbird. Or the blackbird, yes. It's the one thing that a lot of conservationists don't like to talk about too much is exactly how many millions of birds are killed by domestic pets, i.e. cats, yeah. every year. And, you know, there's things one can do, you know. A little bell round the neck can warn a bird off because they will. It's in their nature. That's what cats do. They go, ah, bird, so chase, why, eat. Why is it in their nature, though? Because at one point they'd have been wild, so they'd have had to survive on finding and foraging food. For the sake of it, though, they just kill. Yeah, they do. They like yeah. to 
play. So yes, like just... like foxes do with yeah. chickens. My pet rat, you know, the pet rat, and they started killing it. And I said, "Don't kill it," you know. So I kicked the cat till it was really sorry, <laughs> trying to eat my rat, or not even eat it at all, because it just couldn't get the the tail down, you know. Did you, didn't you learn his lesson though? Did I learn a lesson? No, the cat. Only that they're delicious if they're not kicked while they're eating it. Is that too philosophic for you? This is my studio, by the way. The cavern opens. Here we are. So, if, can you talk us through the materials you've got just by the desk here? Well, this is just Indian ink used for most of my work, and I use pieces of collage, and I use acrylic paint if I want to do things like stopping things out, you know, to either make them really red, solid red, or, or a solid white, Chinese white. But um, I don't necessarily want to know where the thing is going, unless it's a drawing of a like the bird books we've been doing. Even that drawing, I like it to sort of evolve. And sometimes it does take on a slight personality of its own. So how do you go about creating a drawing of a bird? Well, I look for reference first of some kind, you know, that I can use when I need it, if and when I need it. Because sometimes I don't. Although I looked at the dodo a few times before I began to draw that. I think that was one of the first birds I drew, wasn't it? Say, uh, let me see now. If I put a piece of old paper, excuse me, I've got some paper. Let's start. I'll use a piece of that. And i uh, lay that on there. Sometimes I just sellotape the corners. And it just stops it from moving so that you get a, a static area that's clear to start with. And then you take a pen, a brush, something with a little weight to it. And I'll say stick it in there like that, which is Indian ink, right? I'll take that and I can do that and look at the lovely things that start to happen throughout the uh, that splat that's now changing that the thing will change and continue to change until it dries it gives me a multitude of variations that I could develop or leave you know depending on whether I like it as it is or whether it looks like that could go somewhere you know that that thing for instance could be the beginning of a bird I think and we could put a beak on that and turn it into one uh, such a charming little fella really. Could be a, a dicky bird, couldn't it, Richard? <laughs> I'd like to show you the original drawings. Go through here, sir. Thank you. I'll follow you. Okay. And this is an owl, owl alone. It's on its own there, at the bottom of it. And the Nicobar owl and the Madagascar red owl maybe never meet, but they do in this drawing, don't they? Well, you can cross boundaries. It's not a problem for you. And I love it. I think it's such a, 
a beautiful and, and sensitive portrait of them. Mm. I love the fact that Madagascar red owl is dozing in the way that owls do, and I think yeah. you've captured something there. Yes, the Balearic Shearwaters is a sort of a half-finished picture, but I didn't want to do any more to it. It was done. I think I even began with the splat and then carried on doing things. I remember when you showed that to me and you said, I'm not sure it's finished, but I think it's just right. You've got the essence of the birds there, and I think there's so much movement in it. Is it a Japanese crane, was it? It is. Well, the red-crowned crane, yes. which comes from Japan on, yes. on the whole. Somebody has sent me these lovely pictures. I thought, well, I've got to, and that's a nice one, you know. I'll draw, draw that one. I've done a nice picture of the Japanese crane. And then uh, Kerry says, oh, but it's the Siberian crane that is endangered, critically endangered. At the time, we were trying to just do critically endangered birds, and the red-crowned crane was only at the level of endangered. And I said this to Ralph, and he turned around to me and said, what does it matter? They're all endangered. And from then on, it actually changed the book, the whole crane incident. That He was absolutely right. We even drew a carrion crane. You see, there's a Siberian crane, and now there's a carrion crane. doesn't exist, actually. And this is one of my favourites. This was a splat, a real splat, when I took my jar of water that I washed brushes out in and I took a piece of paper this piece of paper put it on the floor in the studio and threw ink on it just enough and it went like that and I let that dry it took about three days to dry so I to make this black mean something I thought I've got to give it a neck of some kind so I got a bottle of blue ink and also poured that but one blob at a time, around, and suddenly began to see the semblance of a, of a bird. So I looked through my books of anatomy, not bird anatomy, but just general anatomy, and I come across lovely pictures, and I chose this picture that became a beak of a bird. And I don't know what this exploded red-headed vulture is, whether it is an exploded red-headed vulture, because he's hardly got a red head, has he? <laughs> it's part of a wider shift in ecological writing. I mean, 10, 20 years ago, we heard all about the doom and gloom, how we're all on the route to hell. And now people are turning that around because they've realised that it's difficult to inspire people in the face of disaster. Yeah, I think, you know, inspiring people... It, we live in an age where we can find out anything we want in seconds and we're kind of desensitized to tragedy, trauma, great mishaps across the world. So you've got to find a way to engage with people in a different way. And I think that's where conservation has been struggling for a while because everybody who knows knows about these problems and knows about the issues of these subjects. But it's all about engaging with new people who go, I had no idea. Once you hear those words you've got a chance of converting those people into helping. And that's what the world around us needs, is help. Humour, I think, always opens up a dialogue that perhaps wouldn't be there if you do it in a serious fashion. But I was thinking, because in a wider sense, it's changing the culture, isn't it? It's about keeping it fresh. And, you know, you're at the age of 79. You're still somehow managing to produce work of this quality. Yes, but, uh, yes, I, look, so many years ago, when I took up drawing... I wanted to change the world, that was my idea. And as I say now, 
I reckon I've succeeded because all these years later, it's worse than it was when I started, so I've succeeded, you see. <laughs> but I mean, when you're still in the studio working, how does it feel? Is it because you enjoy it? Is it because you want to stick two fingers up to the bastards, or is it, is it something else? Uh, it's a combination of all those things. But one of your first books was a book about dogs. Yes, it was going to be about landladies, actually. But uh, I had so many landladies, I kept moving and moving and moving, I couldn't stand it. It was awful when I first came to London after doing military service. Because I was also decided, after taking a correspondence course while I did military service, called the Percy V. Bradshaw Press Art School course, you too can learn to draw and earn pounds. He was over at Forest Hill. And uh, I did this thing. I used to draw my boots on the bed, and then I draw the lads in the billet playing cards because I wasn't much of a card player. I'm not very interested in that. So that's what I was doing. I was just wondering if this, the book of birds, is in some way a return to that concern with the animals that you began with. I think it must be actually, and I think um, uh, it certainly beats politicians. <laughs> Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Ralph Steadman and Kerry Levy. If one way of inspiring change is through the language of humour, the heightened language of poetry offers another route. When The Guardian launched its Keep It In The Ground campaign early this year, we teamed up with Carol Ann Duffy, the Poet Laureate, to bring together a collection of poems responding to the climate emergency. Here, Ewan Rayon reads Gillian Clark's Canterer Gwylod, Michael Sheen reads Robert Minhinnick's The Rhinoceros, and Kelly MacDonald reads Jackie Kay's Extinction. Cantre Gwaelod by Gillian Clark. The morning after, the beach at Borth is a graveyard, a petrified forest thundered out of the sand by the storm. Drowned by the sea six thousand years ago when the earth was flat, the horizon, the edge of the world. Remains of stilted walkways tell their story, how they walked over water between trees, longing for a lost land when the sea gods stole it, how they shouldered their children and fled with every creature that could crawl, run, fly, till time turned truth to myth. It's how it'll be as world turns reflective, seas sated with meltwater, craving more, a cliff fall takes a bungalow. A monstrous tide rips up a coastal train track. Storm fells a thousand-year-old oak, smashes a graceful seaside promenade. Grieve for lost wilderness, for the lovesick salmon, lured by sweet river water sleeved in the salt, homing upstream to spawn at the source where it was born, for mating hares in love with the march wind. For thermals lifting a flaunt of red kites over the wood. For bees mooning for honey in weedless fields. 
for sleepy marsh fritillary butterflies swarming the ancient bog of Korslaurkurt. For the brown hairstreak in love with blackthorn and the honeydew of aphids in the ash. For the blackbird's evening aria of possession. For earth's intricate engineering, unpicked like the flesh, sinews bones of the mother duck crushed on the motorway, her young bewildered in a blizzard of feathers. The balance of things undone by money. The indifferent hunger of the sea. Robert Min Hinnick, The Rhinoceros, on the steel beach. Look at these. Thor sweat, smoke on the swale, swarf off a swollen sea. No, these, world-famous footprints at low water. Nine thousand years old, they say. But who's counting? Not me. Yet maybe I am. A small man, or woman, outcast or outlaw, hunter, flint napper, cook, all of these. Yes, a woman, pregnant once again, and coming home through the red mud. Or maybe she was dancing. Yes. A woman, I guess, who loved to dance and paint her eyes with coal and ochre and squat to squint at herself in some rock pool and ask, What are you? At night before she slept, she would breathe her harsh hashish and tell her story behind the flames about the brine-bright animals she had scratched into the sand. Her wolf her bear, her rhinoceros. Yes, an armored rhino, like the torrent poured golden and smoking from the blast furnace ladle. A rhino where the glacier will be, and coming out of the sun. A rhino she will picture with her goat willow stick on the last morning she will wake. Extinction by Jackie Kay We closed the borders, folks. We nailed it. No trees, no plants, no immigrants. No foreign nurses, no doctors. We smashed it. We took control of our affairs. No fresh air. No birds, no bees, no HIV. No poles, no pollen. No pandas, no polar bears, no ice, no dice. No rainforests, no foraging, no France. No frogs, no golden toads, no harlequins. No greens, no Brussels, no vegetarians, no lesbians. No carbon curbed emissions, no CO2 questions. No lions, no tigers, no bears. No BBC picked audience. No loony lefties, please. No politically correct classes. No classes, no guardian readers. No readers. No emus, no EUs, no eco-warriors, no euros. No rhinos, no zebras, no burnt bras, no elephants. 
We shut it down. No immigrants. No immigrants. No snivelling, recycling, global warming nutters. Little man, little woman, the world is a dangerous place. Now pour me a pint, dear. Get out of my fracking face. You can read more Keep It In The Ground poems on the Guardian website. Just search for Keep It In The Ground poems and you'll find the series page. Thanks to Ewan Rayon, Michael Sheen, Kelly MacDonald, Caroline Duffy and all the Keep It In The Ground poets, as well as, of course, Ralph Steadman and Kerry Levy. Next week's podcast, we're focusing on the cheery subject of death with Sheldon Solomon and Kim Stanley Robinson. For more literary discussion, join the debate on the book's website, follow us on SoundCloud, sign up on iTunes or install us on your smartphone. Just start up your favourite podcast app and search for Guardian Books Podcast. From me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Eva Krisiak, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.